I probably should not say this as a pastor, but in talking about the Bible, if I'm honest, my hunger for it, gratitude for it at times ebbs and flows. I don't wake up every single day just going, I'm hungry for the word, and I want to, but I don't. Some days I bypass the fact that we have the word of God, and I'm just too busy to even stop to read any of it, to hear from God through it. And so this series has been really good because it's been stirring that in me, more hunger. I want more of that. I'm convicted of that, not just because I'm a pastor, but I live in a house that is hungry for the word. My wife is one of those people that can just read the Bible for hours. I've been recently seeing her. She's like laser focused on her phone. Like, what are you doing? And where most of us would answer TikTok or fantasy football, if you're me, she goes, oh, I'm just doing my Bible reading plan. So into it. She'll read it on her phone. Her preference is to read an actual physical Bible. One of her favorite pastimes is to go to a Christian bookstore, pick out a new Bible, and budget permitting a bookmark to go with it. She loves it. So she's hungry for the word. She loves to read it. She loves to pick out a new Bible, and she's gotten to pick out a lot of new Bibles since we got married because the hungriest being for the word in my house is my dog, Bowser. I kid you not, this guy has destroyed seven Bibles since we got him. He doesn't destroy other things. He doesn't destroy other books, just the Bible. There was a time when, uh, including my wife's childhood Bible that her grandparents gave her, that was a painful day. And I, I ordered this uh, chronological Bible. It's expensive. It's really cool. Chronological, not just by book of the Bible, but passage of the Bible. It's hard to get. Really cool. I started reading it, studying it, was into it, and then came home one night and it looked like it had snowed in our home because Bowser got a hold of that thing and obliterated it. Scripture says man does not live on bread alone, and that is also true of my dog. He is hungry for the word of God. This is gonna be good. The 8.30, man, I'm telling you, you couldn't tell if they were really into it or if they just hate me. So I'm already feeling better. My son, Ezekiel, he's three. He's getting into the Bible. He loves to read Bible stories at night before bed. He goes to Red Rocks Kids where he's learning Bible stories and memorizing verses. How many parents in here are grateful for Red Rocks Kids? All the, the amazing team in there that's making it possible for our kids, the next generation to grow up knowing the word of God and having a relationship with Jesus. He goes to a school with the best teacher ever, Miss Mary, who has these three-year-olds in the Bible. We're working with my son right now on good choices versus bad choices and helping him to figure out what's what. And totally out of context, out of the blue one night, which is a three-year-old specialty, he just goes, Hey, Dad, Jonathan's dad made a really bad choice because he tried to kill David. And for a second, out of context, I was like, what family in your school are you talking about? Oh, my gosh. Then I realized he's a Bible scholar. He's talking about 1 Samuel, the mad King Saul trying to kill the harp-playing David. My son's hungry for the word. And so I want to be more that way, but also I'll admit when my son's starting to get into the Bible, when I have friends that say, hey, I'm going to start reading the Bible, there's a part of me that always goes, Oh boy, here we go. Because there's some weird stuff in there. Anybody else? You guys are all just fine with everything? It's complex. It can be hard to understand. There is a lot going on in this thing. And I think it leads us to some important questions. Questions we all ask, maybe we're afraid to admit. Like there's things in here that I go, God, if I were you, I would not have included that detail. And some of those details actually give more validity to it to me where I'm like, this clearly is not a fairy tale that some guy made up because why would you include so many of these things? But one of the main questions I think we ask when it comes to the Bible is this, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust it? Because a lot hinges on this thing. People are calling this the word of God. They're teaching from it, saying it's the foundation of our life. 
This came from God. There is a lot riding on the trust in this thing. Can I trust the Bible? Because if this is the word of God, then we should probably take it pretty seriously. Am I right? An author named Josh McDowell says that one of the professors he had told him this. If you are an intelligent person, you will read the one book that has drawn more attention than any other if you are searching for the truth. So if you haven't read the Bible, I'm not saying you're not intelligent, but I'm saying you probably should. And hopefully today helps push you to do that. Today we're gonna go to school. I'm gonna be just stationed right here. Not gonna do my usual just aimless wandering back and forth while I talk. So I'm gonna be reading a lot to you, sharing a lot of information. This is gonna feel like somewhat of an intellectual, heady sermon. Like I said, at the 8.30, they were either super into it or they hate me. So I don't know how you'll feel about it, but we wanna answer this question, can I trust the Bible? And to be honest with you, there's so much to this that today we will only be scratching the surface. If you wanna know more about this, I have some recommended reading for you, a list of books. If you wanna grab a picture of this slide, some books that you can read if you wanna dive into knowing more about the Bible, what it is, how it came to be, can we trust it? And anytime I recommend a book other than the Bible, I just have to say, I don't necessarily agree with every single thing that any person would write in a book. This is not the word of God. These are just helpful resources. You're an adult, you can handle this, go read it. And if there's something in there that you're like, I disagree with it, that's okay. It's just a book and it's not my fault. It's the fault of the guy who wrote it. Helpful resources for you as we ask this question, can I trust the Bible? Now within that question, I think there's two main questions. Is this legit, this thing, is this legit and is it from God? So let's start with this question. Is the Bible legit? Is it legit in terms of like a historical document, the things that it says, is there any truth within this thing? Is this legit? And as we start talking about the legitimacy of scripture, I like to start from the unity of scripture or the continuity of the story that it tells. Because the Bible was written over 1500 years on three different continents and three different languages. It has 39 different authors from every walk of life, including kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. Written by a, in a wide variety of literary styles. Poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, allegory. It's been translated in over 2,200 languages, and with technology, it's possible in my son's lifetime, it will become the first universally translated book. And all of it tells one cohesive story of the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. The interconnectedness and the unity of scripture is a masterpiece. I wanna show you a visual representation of the hyperlinks in the Bible. Meaning the number of times that the Bible calls upon itself where it references something that will happen, that does happen, or it calls back to something that was said before. And remember, this is written across 1500 years by different authors in different places in different times. What you're looking at is 63,779 hyperlinks. One unified story. As Heinrich Hein says, sunrise and sunset, promise and fulfillment, birth and death, the whole human drama, everything is in this book. It is the book of books, Biblia or Bible. From primitive cultures to scholars to kings to prophets, prisoners, fishermen, this is the story of God creating, loving, and redeeming his people. Norman Geisler, a philosophy PhD, says, 
civilization has been influenced more by the Judeo-Christian scriptures, meaning the Bible, than by any other book or series of books in the world. Indeed, no great moral or religious work in the world exceeds the depth of morality and the principle of Christian love, and none has a more lofty spiritual concept than the biblical view of God. The Bible presents the highest ideals known to men, ideals that have molded civilization. So you can start to see, this is pretty wild. This wasn't just a couple guys got in a room together and said, hey, let's just come up with a crazy story and try to start a religion to make money. Historians, here's what historians that are skeptical like to do when it comes to the Bible. They like to say, hey, if we can find something that the Bible says that didn't actually happen historically, then we can prove the whole thing's false. Because the Bible talks about real events and real times and real places, real people. And historians continually are finding themselves disappointed because the Bible continues to prove trustworthy and historically reliable. A historian says Hebrew national tradition excels all others in its clear picture of tribal and family origins. In Egypt and Babylonia, Assyria and Phoenicia, Greece and Rome, we look in vain for anything comparable. Basically saying you can't find better keepers of history than the biblical authors. And the Bible continually is proving its accuracy. The reality is the Bible knows more about our history than we do as mankind. Every time historians set out to disprove something, they end up finding out that the Bible was right. For a while, they had this argument about the Hittite people. There's this nation, the Hittite people, talked about in the Old Testament, and historians were saying, hey, we've dug up a lot. We see no proof that those people ever even existed. So if they didn't, then probably the whole Bible's false. Until 1906, when some cities were dug up, and it turns out that's where the Hittite people live, just like the Bible said. Historians had this argument about King Belshazzar. Well, in the book of Daniel, it says this king ruled in this time, but we don't see any proof of that. There's no historical backup for that. So if he didn't exist or reign in the Bible, the whole thing is probably false. Until 1956, when three stones were discovered and inscribed on them was the time period Belshazzar was on the throne just as the Bible said. And there's story after story just like this. Sir William Ramsey said this about Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, the author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. So the reality is for historians, they would have been better off all this time just going from the Bible, going from it instead of trying to disprove it and then finding out, oh, they were right. Norman Geisler says, there's more evidence that the Bible is a reliable source than there is for any other book from the ancient world. Archaeologist William F. Albright declared, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. So historicity, talking about history, same concept. Everyone's like, I've never heard that word. That's a weird take on that. Historicity always lines up with archaeology. That's how they found the Hittite people. That's how they found King Belshazzar. Archaeology has brought about proof of the fathers of the Jewish nation, of King David, the reign of Solomon, all of these stories that a lot of people say are legend and they have found them to be true, real people who lived and reigned in real times. Archaeologists have discovered the ancient cities that the Bible said were destroyed, that were destroyed, evidence of the Jewish captivity, proof of every Assyrian king referenced in scripture, proof of a time when the world had a single language and then was scattered. The noted Roman historian Con J. Hemmer in the book of Acts in the setting of Hellenistic history shows how archaeology has confirmed not dozens, but hundreds and hundreds of details from the biblical account of the early church. Listen to what he says. Even small details have been corroborated, like which way the wind blows, how deep the water is 
a certain distance from the shore. What kind of disease a particular island had, the names of local officials and so forth. Albright, that archeologist, he said, there have been over 25,000 archeological discoveries that substantiate the validity of scripture which is probably why there has been a wave of archeologists becoming Bible-believing Christians. Archeologist Nelson Gluck says, in all of my archeological investigation, I have never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the word of God. It may be stated categorically that no archeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. A few of you are like, okay, maybe this thing is legit. Maybe there's something going on here. Let's talk about the validity of the scriptures. A lot of questions about what was written. Do we have what was originally written? Are we hearing the right things? So let's just start here. Compared with other ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. Bernard Rahm speaks of the Old Testament accuracy and number of biblical manuscripts. He says, Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. They kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity, scribes, lawyers, masserets. Bruce Metzger, a Princeton professor and one of the world's leading biblical text critics, comments that in contrast with other ancient texts, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of its material. Critics and skeptics, people that don't believe in God but are saying, it is legit. We can't dispute the legitimacy and validity of the scriptures. One of the key arguments for the validity of the gospel account of Jesus, that he died and rose from the dead, that it's not a fairy tale, are how early the accounts of Jesus were being written. The New Testament was written by eyewitnesses in the time that this all happened. So if you're gonna tell a lie, you tell it later when nobody else can dispute it because they weren't there, right? These were all written in the first generation. Tons of people around that could say, that didn't happen, that's not true, could dispute it. And the disciples in Paul and his letters, they doubled down on what they were saying and named witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The gospels tell us there were over 500 witnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus, 500. Mark, when he's talking about Jesus going to the cross, there's a man who comes and they tell him to help Jesus carry the cross and Mark gives his name and his son's name going, hey, if you don't believe me, go ask that guy. Paul names 15 different witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You got questions? Go ask them. Generally in court, two eyewitnesses make an event unimpeachable. And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds. So we know that the original authors in their time and space, right then they were writing and telling the story of the risen Jesus. How do we know that we're reading what they wrote though? It's been a long time. It's passed down through a lot of people, right? Of course, that takes us to the bibliographical evidence. You guys were all ahead of me. <laughs> Back then, they didn't have computers, right? There was no cloud. And so if you wanted to tell a story, you wrote it down, and then you started making copies of it to circulate so other people could read the story. Historians have two ways that you validate an ancient writing, a historical text. How closely the copies can be dated within the original writing. So what's the time gap between when this was written and when we start seeing copies of this being made and you can put them all together and go, okay, are they saying the same thing or are they not? And the other category is the number of copies we have. How many different copies do we have that we can cross-reference and say, is this all saying the same thing? So for reference, let's talk about some historical documents. Let's start with Plato. Maybe you've read a little Plato, heard about him in school. 
Not like the substance, but that's named after this guy. Plato wrote around, everyone's like, I never thought of that. Wrote around 427 and 347 BC. Okay, this is when he wrote. And no one really questions that he wrote what he wrote and he said what he said because it's Plato and it's history. We learned it, right? Which is interesting because we have seven copies, seven, and a time gap of 1,200 years from when he would have originally written to the first copy we can find of something he wrote. Seven to corroborate with. Everyone sees that and goes, yeah, it's legit. Nobody questions what we know about Alexander the Great, even though the first biography written about Alexander the Great was written 300 years after he died, not copied, written. Take it as fact. The second most trusted historical document of all time is the Iliad by Homer. This is outstanding. We have 643 copies of that. And a pretty, for history, a short time gap of 400 years where copies were seen that were made 400 years after he originally wrote and that many copies to put them all together and say, yeah, this is what the Iliad said. Very few ancient texts have 10 to 20 copies that are validated. Let's talk about the most trusted historical document, the New Testament. We have 5,656 partial and complete copies of the New Testament passed through history. In Greek, over 10,000 Latin Vulgate and 9,300 other early versions, meaning we have close to, if not more than 25,000 manuscript copies of partial and full New Testaments in existence today. I just said 25,000 copies that they can line up and go chain of context all the way back. That's what it said all the way to today. And that time gap is 50 years. When we start seeing copies, the first copies that we see, the disciples were writing soon after the resurrection, mind you, also being hunted and running for their lives while trying to record the stories of Jesus. And, and our Bibles are meticulous enough to tell us points where it says, some manuscripts said this word or this phrase. Just so you know, as we've looked through all of the manuscripts and put them all next to each other, here's, here's a few verses that some manuscripts had and some didn't. This parchment was cut out. We didn't see this. Honest about it. Dr. John A.T. Robinson in his research concluded the entirety of the New Testament was written by 70 AD. Jesus was believed to have risen 30 AD. So we're talking about a few decades where we start to see all of these copies circulating. There's nothing that compares to this. And we don't have time to dive too deep into the canonization of the Bible, how the Bible became the Bible as we know it, but you can research and you can look at the Leningrad Codex, the Dead Sea Scrolls, meticulous record keeping of the Jewish people, the multitude of manuscripts we just talked about, all the time and copies, how early the New Testament was being compiled. And as my friend Jenna relayed to me, man did not decide the canon, man discovered the canon. It was meticulously and divinely put together. And if God is sovereign, then he certainly can have the Bible come together how he wants. And if you wanna know more, if you have more questions about that stuff, Kevin and Jenna teach an apologetics class right in this room Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. They're two weeks in, you're welcome to come join and learn more. F.E. Peter states that on the basis of manuscript tradition alone, the works that make up the Christian New Testament were the most frequently copied and widely circulated books of antiquity. A professor, F.F. Bruce, who investigated the validity of scripture said, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Indeed, compared to all other writings from that era of history, the New Testament scriptures are the most valid and trustable of all. And it's clear that the people who were writing them and copying them and circulating them felt that this was the most important message that the world could ever hear. 
The historian Hemmer says this about Luke's gospel. So here you have an impeccable historian who has been proven right in hundreds of details and never proven wrong, writing the whole history of Jesus in the early church. And it's written within one generation while eyewitnesses were still alive and could have disputed it if it were exaggerated or false. You don't have anything like that from any other religious book from the ancient world. An author by the name of Kenyon, in light of the bibliographical evidence of the New Testament, says the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as they were written has now been removed. The Bible has more physical evidence proving its accuracy and authenticity than any historical document on the planet. We have more writings about Jesus than we do the Roman Empire. And we see that essentially the entire New Testament come together by mid-second century as the church is being persecuted. The four gospels were known as the four gospel accounts by the end of the first century. And that's not to mention the external evidence, the non-biblical sources that corroborate the story. We have many non-biblical sources that document Jesus' life, his claim to be God, miracles that he did, where he lived, that he was crucified, and his disciples' message of his resurrection. Any learned historian does not question whether Jesus of Nazareth existed or has greatly influenced the world. We've got writings from early church leaders defending the scriptures like Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Papias, Irenaeus, who said, so firm is the ground upon which these gospels rest that the very heretics themselves bear witness to them. We've got writings from outside the church. We've got writings from Josephus, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, telling the story of Jesus in the biblical narrative. We've got Greek, Roman, Jewish, Samaritan sources from the first century corroborating the story the disciples were telling the world. So, if you reject the Bible as legit, all I'm saying is to be a reasonable person, you then have to throw out everything we know outside of modern history. Antiquity's gone. And we essentially know nothing about what happened before us. If you wanna be reasonable. So you might say, okay, it's legit, whatever, it's backed up by history and archeology span and clearly the manuscript evidence and all that stuff, but is it the word of God? We're gonna say this came from God. The Bible says that, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So make no mistake, the Bible claims to be the word of God. It's not claiming to be a book of morals or a book of rules or a fairy tale. This is God breathed, meaning from the spirit, but through man. Some Bibles will use the word inspired. Here's a definition for you. The inspired word is the idea that God so directed the human authors that without destroying their own individuality, literary style, or personal interests, God's complete and connected thought toward man was recorded. God didn't just choose the words, he chose the authors. Some people argue, well, God chose to reveal his word through humans, so it has to be corrupt, it can't be trusted. I would argue, we don't have a story of one guy claiming he went and found something and has absolute truth in his hands. We have a story of 1,500 years, all telling the same story of authors all over the place, even in different languages. All those hyperlinks, all pointing to this unified story of God coming to redeem his people. But is it really from God? Like, is there anything that can really show us that? Probably the most compelling argument for me of the divine nature of the Bible is the confirmation of prophecies. The Bible is the only book in the world that has precise, specific predictions that were made hundreds of years in advance that were literally fulfilled. And don't come talk to me about Nostradamus in the lobby and people like that because when you go read what they wrote, you have to do a whole lot of gymnastics to tie that to a current event or something that happened in history that they predicted. I read a stat that 6% of psychics predictions are correct. 
I feel like I could do better than that just making stuff up. The Bible has prophecy that came true and is historically validated all over the place. Things like the city of Edom, the curse on Babylon, and Nineveh, the return of Israel to the land. In Ezekiel 27, there are seven specific prophecies that lay out how the destruction of the city called Tyre will happen, all the way to the detail of debris of the city being pushed into the ocean, which is a bizarre thing to say. Until 700 years later, we have record that Alexander the Great came and destroyed that city, and to get to people that were out on an island, his army pushed the debris of the city into the ocean to make a walkway out to that island, just as Ezekiel had predicted hundreds of years before. And that stuff's cool, but what really matters is all the predictions about Jesus. According to Barton Payne's Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, there are 191 predictions in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, things that would be outside of a mere man's control, including his ancestry, the city in which he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, precisely the time in history he would die, and so on. Think about all those hyperlinks we looked at, and a bunch of those are someone saying, this is going to happen when the Messiah, the Savior, comes, and then them happening in the life of Jesus. Some of you will remember this next chunk from earlier this year when we talked about the prophets. Psalm 22 describes exactly how Jesus died a thousand years before he died, and a thousand years before crucifixion was invented as a way of killing people. All the way to the details of him being offered vinegar on a sponge and being pierced in the side. Isaiah 53 prophesies 12 exact things that happened to Jesus in his suffering 700 years before he was here. This is my favorite thing. Someone took eight of the major prophecies about Jesus and calculated the math behind one human being fulfilling all of them and calculated the probability of someone doing that as one in 100 million billion. You can read about this in the book, The Case for Christ. He writes, the mathematician calculated, if you took this number, 100 million billion of silver dollars, that would, cover, that would cover the state of Texas to a depth of two feet. The whole state covered in silver dollars to a depth of two feet. If you marked one silver dollar, one, among them, and had a blindfolded person wander the whole state and bend down to pick up one coin, what would be the odds he'd choose the one that had been marked? The same odds that anybody in history could have fulfilled just eight of these prophecies. A mathematician named Peter W. Stoner computed the probability of fulfilling 48 of the prophecies as one, and then the word trillion 13 times. So we're talking about the most trusted historical document, bold enough to include hundreds of prophecies and predictions, and then documentation of them happening in scripture and from external sources. Norman Geisler says, if an omniscient God exists who knows the future, then predictive prophecy is possible, and if the Bible contains such predictions, then they are a sign of its divine origin. We can talk about miracles. The Bible's pretty bold with the miracles that come in the Bible. Jesus said you could know he was who he said he was because of his miracles. And we have a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Historically, we know that he existed. Interrogates Jesus with curiosity. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. This guy didn't even believe in Jesus, but is admitting he was a miracle worker. One of the things I love to look at in the power of God and his word is the survival of scripture. The fact that we have this, that this still exists. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And through history, many times, people have endeavored not to just disprove it, but to destroy it. Bernard Rahm says, no other book has been so chopped, knived, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. There's a story when a French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion. And an old statesman and warrior came to him and said, Sire, 
The church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been from God, it would have been destroyed a long time ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at destroying it and they all die and it lives on. The noted French infidel Voltaire, who died in 1778, he declared that in 100 years from his passing, from his lifetime, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. And 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's press and house to create Bibles. Time Magazine once wrote, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps the better for the siege. And we have this beautiful story of God and his people because of so many that risked their lives and gave up everything to tell its message. We look at the disciples, the ones who wrote this, the ones who were circulating these scriptures, being killed along the way, that gave, gave their lives up, not for an ideology, but for an event, for a resurrection. There's a well-known cold case investigator, J. Warner Wallace, and he comes at the validity of the scriptures and the resurrection from a investigator perspective. There's a bunch of different arguments he makes, one of which is about the disciples and the idea that, didn't they just conspire to come up with this narrative? They just made this up. And as he's investigated the psychology of why people commit crimes and create conspiracies and tell lies, he said there are three reasons why a human does those. Financial greed, sexual relationship or lust, or the pursuit of power. And the disciples certainly did not become martyrs for those reasons. Think about Paul, gave up power, lived a celibate life, went from being wealthy to making tents to survive, lost all of his status, went from hunting Christians for an ideology to being beheaded for his faith that Jesus rose from the grave. So let me summarize a ton of research with this from the conversation of Lee Strobel and Norman Geisler in the case for faith. Geisler says, when you add this up, the historical reliability of the Bible, authenticated by archeology, span the miraculous fulfillment of clear predictive prophecies and the performance of documented miracles, you get a supernaturally confirmed book unlike any other in history. And Strobel says to him, what you're not saying is I believe the Bible is divinely inspired because it says it is. He says, that's right, because that's a circular argument. No, the argument goes like this. The Bible claims to be the word of God and the Bible proves to be the word of God. So the answer is yes, you can trust your Bible. And I hope that builds some of your faith, the foundation of what you read, the word of God, what you stand on. But let me say that with all of that evidence that does build my faith, none of that is why I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. The Bible holds authority in my life because Jesus holds the authority in my life. I don't come here to worship the Bible. I come here to worship Jesus, but I see his story and his call on me expressed through this. And so I let it be the rock on which I build my life. My foundation is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, the story that this tells. And you cannot divorce Jesus from his word. Andrew Wilson says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. If Jesus is who he said he is, then you gotta do something with the Bible. And you can look at all the evidence to see that he was who he said he was. 
If he wasn't, then you don't have to worry about it. But Jesus preached the scriptures. He talked about the Old Testament, quoted the Old Testament, preached from it all the time. He held the Bible as authoritative and divine. In Luke 24, he said, this all points to me. This is scripture living out through me. And then he tells his disciples to go and tell the world, which means yes, preaching, and also means writing and making copies and circulating the story of the good news of Jesus all over the world. When the devil tempted Jesus, he quoted scripture back to him, the word of God. There's a brilliant professor named Gary Habermas who wrote a 350-page dissertation, which I read this morning. And you can go, you can go, that was the only time the 830 laughed, and so I thought I'd say it again. <laughs> you can go watch some of his lectures. But this guy went about proving the resurrection from the perspective of someone who didn't treat the Bible as the word of God and proved it with dates, the manuscripts, the accounts, the story of Paul and how quickly he would have heard the gospel and the resurrection message of Jesus. This guy has 23 proofs for the empty tomb. He has led skeptics to say, I am sure the risen Jesus appeared to his disciples after his death. I'm sure of it. Don't even believe that he's the savior. Don't even wanna be a part of it, but I do believe that his disciples saw him risen. Here's what I know, you can have endless evidence. We could talk all day long and this can still be to you nothing more than information. But the word of God is not information. This is revelation for your spiritual formation. That's what it intends to be. You're not saved because of the Bible, you're saved because of Jesus. And this is the story that you get every single day to build your life on. John 5, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. I accept Jesus as the authority in my life and therefore I accept the scriptures as the way that his authority is expressed to me. He said he didn't come to destroy or deconstruct the scriptures. He came to fulfill them. John Mark Homer talks about, you don't come to the Bible with the right technique to read it, you come with the right posture. You don't come to control or master the word of God, you come to be transformed by the word of God. We love to just pick and choose, right? I like this part, don't get this part. I'm gonna make this mean what I want it to mean. I remember in college, reading Ephesians, and there's a verse that says, do not get drunk on wine for it leads to debauchery. And I went, I don't drink wine, perfect. I'm a Bible guy, I drink cheap beer and cheap vodka, so I'm obeying the word of God. Not really hearing the heart behind that and all the mess I was making of my life. But the Bible confronts our desire to control. It confronts our desire to be God and we do not like that as human beings. Because giving up control means faith. Robert Mulholland says, genuine spiritual formation brings about a fundamental shift from being our own production to being God's creation. And we live in a culture and a society every day that's telling you, go be your own production. You hold absolute truth. You know better than everybody else. You know more than the God who created you, but you're his creation. And after all that, I don't think the most important question for you is can you trust the Bible? Because it's abundantly clear that you can. You can talk more about Jesus, the most influential figure in human history. Other world religions that don't call him savior still revere him, still acknowledge him. You can see the effect of him all over this world. This was a guy who did ministry for three years with 12 nobodies, no army, no money, and willingly let men nail him to the cross because as he told his disciples, he would rise. Death was never gonna hold him. You can see all that evidence, still a question of faith. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Your eternity is staked on whether you believe that or not. And Christians can see all this evidence. I see all this and I go, I know that there will be people that walk out of this room today and go, still don't believe it. 
want nothing to do with it. How? That Professor Gary Habermas says, a lot of people go on blind dates who don't wanna get married. 70 to 85% of doubters doubt, not for factual reasons, but for emotional reasons. That's what I know. You can have all the facts and evidence in the world, but for some of you, it's church baggage. It's pain that a Christian caused you. It's a misunderstanding. It's anger at a God that you say doesn't exist. That's what's stopping you from a relationship with Jesus. Not whether you can trust this or not. Not whether he rose from the grave or not. The evidence just continues to mount and will through your lifetime and through all of history. It's actually a logical decision. But what today shows us is actually in the end, as much as it can seem like faith lives up here, it lives in your heart. It's not just intellect, it's not just information. And so I think the more important question than can I trust the Bible is will I trust the Bible? Will I trust the word of God? Will I trust it? Will I trust the story that tells of humanity that sinned against God and because of that earned the wages of sin, which is death, but praise be to God that he sent his son Jesus for our sin, your sin, my sin, that Jesus did lay his life down, which is historically documented that he was crucified that he poured out his blood as the, the perfect sacrifice for our sin and that he walked out of a tomb with resurrected life for anybody that would believe that he is Lord. Will you trust that? And if you put your trust in Jesus, then will you trust his word in your doubts and disagreements in the things that you don't like? Will you put things in their proper context? Will you study? Will you not pull verses out to weaponize them against somebody else and not pull them out, out of context to justify something? But will you Seek the word of God, learn the word of God, study the word of God, talk about the word of God, trust it. John Collins says many Christians are becoming post-Bible Christians. I believe in Jesus, but I want nothing to do with that. And that's just a layover to becoming post-Christian. Start to make God in your own image. Start to make the story of Jesus about you. This is the trustable anchor that daily will reveal the truth of your savior to you. I just heard a guy, Nathan Finocchio say, when you get to something in scripture that you don't like, Assume you're wrong. What's your posture towards God and his word? Are you writing history? Are you the author of life in the universe or is he? And let me lovingly say to you, you need to put your trust in Jesus because you can't save yourself and you need to put your trust in his word because you can't trust yourself. You can't trust yourself and you can't trust your friends with absolute truth. You just can't. We've all been alive for a couple decades in one era of history. How could we possibly know the mysteries of the universe? But praise be to God that he revealed to us the story of Jesus. So will you surrender over and over to Jesus and let his word speak to you in your doubts, your disagreements, your desires, your difficulties, your decisions? Like Doug said last week, your Bible was not meant to confirm your beliefs. It was meant to craft them. Can you trust the Bible? Yes, absolutely. People who don't believe in God will tell you that. Will you trust? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust his word? I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. And so I wanna finish today by reading to you, if you guys wanna stand to your feet if you're able, from the most validated ancient document that we have, the most important event in all of history and the most important event to your life. The great historian Luke says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. 
In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Red Rocks Church, let's worship. 